Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And this is our eighth episode dedicated to working our way through the summer saga, Njal Saga. <laughs> eight episodes. Uh, yeah. This episode is brought to you by Pythagoreanism, uh, which <laughs> considered eight to be the number of geometrical harmony. Ah, see, that explains the immense feeling of oneness I'm experiencing with creation <laughs> at this very moment. I thought I saw a glow about you. That's right, yeah. Now, I, I know uh, our seventh episode on y'all was considered a lucky episode, but our luck hasn't run dry just yet now that we're on our eighth episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's because the number eight is traditionally considered lucky in Chinese numerology. So I just want to say ni hao to our Chinese listeners. Woman de xin yun shu zi ba. Um, I don't know whether to be impressed or upset or confused. I want you to trust your gut, John. I want you to be impressed. My gut says confused. Uh, people <laughs> complain about our Icelandic pronunciation, and now you're trying Chinese. Yeah, I tried. I'm just praying you haven't inadvertently started a third world war. Uh, I'm pretty sure that we're safe. Okay. Uh, but you you might be right. Anyway, are you ready to start? Almost. Uh, I thought I'd mention that eight is also the sixth number in the Fibonacci sequence. The sixth number? Are you sure it's not the seventh? Uh, it depends on which version of the sequence you're talking about. Ah, okay. Well, don't you think you should have specified if you're going to well, make that point? Technically, if I say it's the sixth number, I've already identified which version I'm using. So there. Ah, okay, fair enough. Uh, so re- are you ready now or do you have another number nonsense thing to get out of your system? Uh, just one more. I figured as much. Uh, for you Pratchett fans out there, this episode is twice four, has a slightly greenish yellow purple color and should never be listened to by wizards. Hmm. Yeah, you lost me there. I'm not sure that was worth it. That's all right. The Ankhmore Porkians understood me. Okay, now I'm ready. <laughs> okay. All right, good, because uh, our summer saga is quickly shading into autumn now. Andy, I'm in New England, and we know autumn around here. We're definitely heading into leaf-peeping season, and that tells me that we failed to get this entire saga done during the summer months. Oh, I, I think we both knew that that was always a pipe dream. Uh, and besides, we had to take a break from the saga to produce two brilliant saga briefs on the conversion of Iceland. A change is as good as a rest, you know. Uh-huh. Are, are you familiar with the expression busman's holiday? No. Probably something <laughs> from the 1950s, but... Uh, Possibly. Yeah, okay, but now we are back, and this is going to be an epic episode. But before we get to these earth-shaking events of this section... Uh, we need to explain how we got here. Mm. It might have been a while for some of you. Uh, John, you want to get us started? Uh, all right. Uh, get your finger in your ear and let's go. Last time on Njal Saga. In the wake of Thrain Sigvison's death, the Njalsons were caught off guard by Thrain's no-account brother-in-law, Luting, who led an ambush in which Hoskuld Njalson was killed. Eager to give their brothers killer what for... The remaining Nelsons, Skarpathen, Grimm, and Helgi, attacked Luding's farm. Luding's brothers were killed, but he escaped and made a financial settlement with Njal that kept him safe from the Nelsons' wrath. The saga then told the story of Thangrand and Gutleif, Christian missionaries sent by King Olaf of Norway. The Christians converted several high-profile figures, including Njal Thorgerson himself. But their abrasive attitude and violent dispositions made a poor impression on many in Iceland. By the time the missionaries returned to Norway, Iceland was teetering on the brink of civil war. A fine kettle of fish. But cooler heads prevailed as both sides agreed to abide the wisdom of Thorgir the Lawspeaker, who announced that the island must turn to Christianity. Not everyone was happy with the decision, but the new law stuck and Iceland became Christian, at least in name. 
Three years later, the late Hoskold Nielsen's illegitimate son, Abundi the Blind, confronted Luting, who told him in no uncertain terms where to get off. On his way out of the booth, Amundi's eyes miraculously opened, and using his newfound sight, Amundi immediately buried his axe in Luting's head, thus fulfilling his filial duty to avenge his lost father. We're, uh, we're spanning 17 chapters this time out, and our, our story is really picking up speed as we hurtle toward the climax of the saga. Yeah, you're working hard to make it sound like we've got some momentum going here. I don't think that's true. Well, it's important to keep everyone's spirit up. Oh, I see. Uh, why don't you go ahead and tell everyone what's in store in this episode? All right, I will, but I'll be brief. In this episode, Morth Volgerson returns, and he's up to no good again. In an effort to re-establish his authority in the region, he befriends the Njolsons and fills their ears with lies. Scarpathen and his brothers clumsily fall into the trap. Suspecting that a beloved friend is plotting against them in secret, they move to attack. And with Morth by their side, each of the Njolsons buries his weapon in the crumpling corpse of a man who loved them above all others. The results are catastrophic. With a major lawsuit pending and public opinion turning against them, the Njalsons attempt to gather support from Iceland's most influential men, including such notable figures as Guthman the Powerful and his proud enemy Thorkel the Bully, a renowned monster fighter. They also seek counsel from none other than Snorri Gothi. Yes, that's Snorri Gothi. But will these giants of the saga age agree to take up the Njalsons' precarious case and risk their own reputations? Will they join forces and save the day? Or is this the beginning of the end for Njal and his family? Find out as Saga Thing takes on Njal Saga, chapters 107 to 123. Now, as that summary suggests, we're going to be seeing the saga move into a darker register in this episode. Somewhat. I mean, there's some pretty horrible stuff still to come after this. Okay, I know, but what I mean is this is the part of the saga where we see the Njalsons behaving in ways that betray their darker side. And to some degree, we have to recognize that they're on their way to becoming, I guess villains is too strong a word, but definitely they're less sympathetic than they've been up to this point. Well, yes, but one of the things that this author does really well is to force you to consider that there aren't any villains or heroes necessarily in the story. Mm -hmm. They're just people behaving as people do. And sometimes that's not a very pleasant thing. I mean, really, we're, we're back to a version of Theodore Anderson and the idea that the sagas withhold moral judgment. Yeah, but I'm not sure that's true here. I, I don't think there's any doubt that what the Njalsons do in these chapters is difficult to justify morally. Uh, but we're not required to reject them as protagonists because of their moral failings. Well, and I would debate whether they're exactly moral failings so much as circumstantial problems. But uh, we're putting the cart before the horse here. I'd really love to dig into the critical discussion first, but we sh probably should talk a little bit about the saga for a while um, so that everyone's on the same page. All right. All right. Lead on. Part 31, Death of a Chieftain. So we're picking up our story in the aftermath of the conversion. The countries become Christian or at least sort of Christian. But that doesn't mean the pagans are out of the saga just yet. Right. And one of the most notorious pagans in this saga, Morth's father, Volgard the Grey, 
has been away from Iceland during the conversion years. Now, he's returning to the island, and he's disgusted by what he finds, all these Christians <laughs> running around. Mm-hmm. Now, even his son, Morth, has accepted baptism, which is really offensive to him. Yeah, now, and there are a few sharp words exchanged about that. But it's not really the Christians who are annoying Volgard. No, as he says to his son, I went to Vittenes and saw many new booths and great changes. I went also to the place of the Thing Scholar Assembly, and there all our booths are falling apart. What's the reason for this disgrace? I think that's your best voice yet for a particular <laughs> character. Now, we, I'm we glad talk, you liked that one. Yeah, I liked it. Yeah, we talked a couple episodes about Njal and Morth and the, the kind of power struggle in that region. Um, and as we said, one of the undercurrents in this middle part of the saga is Njal's efforts to maintain his independence against the local chieftains. Right, And that's a problem because Morth is technically the local Gothi for Njal's region. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean he's necessarily Njal's Gothi. Right. As we said before, landowners weren't required to support the nearest chieftain at all. Right. And all that political tension has been the subtext of our story up to this moment. Suddenly, it ceases to be subtext and becomes just text. Right. Njal's machinations in creating a new chieftaincy for Hoskold Thrainson, who is now known as Hoskold Vittenes Gothi, have resulted in an exodus of more supporters to Hoskold. And Volgard is disgusted with what he calls Morth's unmanly handling of the Godorth. Mm. And and he immediately hatches a plan to destroy Njal's family in revenge. Ooh, it isn't by any chance a cunning plan, is it? Well, you know, I suppose that depends on your definition of cunning. <laughs> the plan here is to drive a wedge between Hoskold Thrainsen and the Njalsons by trying to befriend both groups and then whisper lies about each into the other's ear, which is kind of clever. Right, but that assumes that anyone thinks it's a good idea to listen to anything Morth has to say. Exactly. Especially Hoskold of the Njalsons. Morth was an enemy of Hoskold's cousin Gunnar, and Scarpathen was instrumental in forcing Morth to pay for his part in Gunnar's death. Mm-hmm. Morth's a conniving snake in the grass, and everyone involved here knows it. Well, and that's why they're definitely suspicious. Mm-hmm. Now, as it happens, Volgar dies shortly after this conversation he has with Morth. And then Morth invites the Njalsons and Kari to the memorial feast for his father. They attend this feast, but Scarpathen looks at him and says, You've never made any effort before. <laughs> and yet they buy into this and accept Morth's overtures of friendship. Mm-hmm. It's a strange thing given their history. Well, like we said, uh, Morth's technically the local chieftain, or at least one of the options for chieftains. Mm. Uh, possibly they see some value in the thawing of relations with Morth's family. <laughs> or they think now that Valgard's dead, Morth's trying a little PR campaign to build up his support now that he's the head of the family. Could be. And they might as well enjoy the gifts and flattery that he'll be dishing out. Right? There's no commitment there. Well, I mean, there's no point in hiding behind the door when gifts are being handed out, right? Well, <laughs> yeah. as Marshall said, gifts are hooks, Andy. Yes. And uh, gifts from a guy like Morth are undoubtedly dangerous. Is that why you don't send me any Christmas presents? Uh, no, that's not why. Uh, oh. But speaking of Christmas, Volgard remains a pagan to the end of his life. But Morth, evil scheming Morth, is a Christian now. Mm-hmm. And he even tried to talk Volgard into converting before his death. So uh, why are you bringing that up? What's interesting about that? Well, we talked last time about the conversion and how it does and doesn't change the dynamic of the saga. I find it interesting that Morth slips into being the villain of the story without the author using the pagan-Christian divide to establish the depravity of his character. Hmm. Well, I mean, Morth is a sneaky little plotter, and Mm -hmm. he's pretty bad before the conversion as well. 
But the treatment of Christianity in this saga is pretty even-handed. I mean, bad mm-hmm. men convert as well as good ones. And there's no real moral censure of those whose Christianity feels more social or political rather than religious. So That's true. Okay. But I think we can begin to look for subtle signs of a changing moral landscape in the second half of the story. Hmm. More than maybe a Christian, but that just means that he's acquiescing to a new moral order, one in which his behavior is sinful as well as shameful. Well, pagan or Christian, Morth's not fooling Njall. Uh, when his sons returned from Volger's funeral with gifts from Morth, Njall says that Morth will be looking for a price for those gifts. <laughs> and see that you don't pay him what he wants, he says. It's got to be tough having a father who can see the future. Yeah. Well, meanwhile, Morth's trying to work on Hoskold as well. Mm-hmm. He visits Hoskold's farm and tries to convince Hoskold that the, the Njallsons are out to get him. But even though Morth comes up with a handful of lies implying treachery on the Njalsen's part, but Hoskold isn't fooled. Mm. He says, For my part, let it be said here and now, that no matter what evil you speak of the Njalsen's, I'll never believe it. And if it ever came down to their killing me, or my killing them, why, I would much rather suffer death than do them harm. You are, in fact, the worse a man for having spoken these things. Ouch. Well, I mean, he's not wrong about that last part. No. But... I mean, the rest of it is a little on the nose. It really is, but it's uh, it's noble. Yeah. Well, because the Njalsons are proving less resistant to Morth's insinuations than Hoskold is. Mm-hmm. He puts all Hoskold's words and actions in the worst possible light, and over time, the Njalsons and Kari come to believe Morth's lies. Well, I mean, why would they believe him? They know that he's a liar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Uh, lying is something of a theme in this saga. Mm-hmm. We've already seen Skalmkel's lies lead to the destruction of his friend Otkel's entire family. Uh, and Grimm and Helgi Njalsson and Thrain Sigvason all lied to Earl Halkin back in Norway. And Mord's been lying, or at least dealing dishonestly, all the way through the saga. Yep. Uh, but that doesn't explain the Njalsson's willingness to trust Mord now. In fact, that ought to make it less likely that they'd believe him. Unless we're just assuming that this is a motif the author's riffing on. Well, it's definitely a motif. Uh, but we should also say that the Njalsons, they have reasons to believe ill of Hoskold. Or at least they think they do. Well, there, there's at least one excellent reason. He's the son of Thrain Sigfusson. Yeah, there is that. Yeah, I feel like that gets glossed over a bit. The Njalsons killed this guy's father, but they had pretty good reasons for it. Thrain was partially responsible for the humiliation Grimm and Helgi suffered in Norway. Mm-hmm. Now, remember, he'd been mocking their manhood, and he'd been uh, repeating that old Dungbeardling's insult against them. And and now that guy's son is their foster brother? Yeah, what's Njal thinking? Well, nobody's perfect. But he had his okay. reasons. But I'd think any Icelander would recognize the likelihood of a problem bringing the next generation of a feud enemy into your house. And Njal's a renowned lawyer who can see the future. He should know better. Uh, yeah, that's true, actually, but but at the same time, he brought him into the house in order to try to avoid that feud. But mm. uh, as far as seeing the future, I guess that there's a blind spot when it comes to Hoskold for Neil. Yeah, yeah, no, he really has one. Um, that feud thing is a real problem. Uh, a number of people have read it this way. Uh, William Ian Miller and Robert Cook, especially. Mm-hmm. Once Hoskold Njalsson's son, Amundi, reopened the feud with the Sigfusons by killing Luting, he rekindled the Njalsson's desire for revenge. But the primary target, Luting, is already dead, and so they vent their anger about their brother's death by attacking Luting's nephew, Hoskold Thrainson. Who's also the son of their former enemy. Right. Two birds, one stone. Hmm. Uh, That would still be a violation of the previous peaceful resolution, although a lot, I guess, would depend on the wording of that agreement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But even making this legal issue may be giving the Njalsons too much credit. They may also just be acting out of jealous spite. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting. You're, you're seeing this all in a much more negative light than I am. I, I tend to look at them as the victims of Moore's lies more than anything. And I don't make that kind his, of moral judgment on them. Right. But given his track record and given his reputation uh, and given their own interactions with Moore in the past, they should be no more likely to think well of Moore than of Oskold. No, that's absolutely true. At the same time, I don't see that there's any indication in the saga that their relationship with Oskold has ever been strained or that there's any room for that kind of uh, hostility that develops. Well, I would say the fact that they're so willing to believe ill of him and then kill him suggests a certain strain, even if it's been below the surface to this point. Well, I, I would agree that it, there's a there's a, a tension below the surface, um, but to suggest that there's some kind of overt hostility between them, um, I think is, is a little bit misleading. Uh, well, as I say, I think one of the issues here may be jealousy, right? Mm-hmm. This is something that comes up in a lot of the scholarship. Sure, yeah. I mean, we talked a couple episodes ago about how much Njal's doing to try to resolve the rift over Thrain's death. And remember, Njal disrupted the entire legal system of the island a few years back in order to manufacture a Gothorth or chieftaincy for Halskold. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm. Uh, and meanwhile, Scarpathen, Grimm, and Helgi have collectively zero chieftaincies to their names, and Njal hasn't done a thing to help any of them get one. Well, to be clear, Scarpathen doesn't deserve one. <laughs> you don't want well, him I'm to just, have it. Doesn't mean, doesn't mean he doesn't think he deserves <laughs> one. Well, I don't know. And also, you know, it's worth pointing out that none of these boys want to leave their father's side. They they all live uh-huh. at home still. So uh-huh. something something's a little strange in the the Njalsen household. See, I'm telling you, these are odd people. Yeah. <laughs> I should also mention that Hildegun, the wife Njal finds for Hoskold, is more socially prominent than the wives he chooses for his own sons. Yeah. No, you can definitely see how jealousy might become an issue. Yeah, it's it's just interesting that the the saga, you know, this is kind of how saga literature works that all this stuff is underlying or potentially underlying the the mm-hmm. the narrative, but it's never ever going to be mentioned. It just erupts right. into action. Right. Um, and and the, here it comes. Here's more the whispering lies in their ears. Uh but those lies speak to I guess if if I'm understanding what you're suggesting here, mm-hmm. uh, the bitterness and envy of the Njalsons against yeah. Hoskold, who's yeah. kind of stepped over them. Um, mm-hmm. The Njalsons, I guess, if that's true, they're understandably willing to listen to these these lies. Yeah, yeah. That's at least that's how I read it. Hmm. Uh, meanwhile, word is getting around the district that the Njalsons are angry at Hoskold, and when Hoskold's wife Hildegun tells her uncle Flosi about the situation, he tries to convince Hoskold to move away from the area. But Hoskold refuses to leave. Well, you know, he doesn't want to be thought a coward. No, no, of course not. But at the same time, he doesn't want any trouble if he is attacked. I would rather die without compensation than that many others were harmed for my sake. Ah, this guy. He's too good to be true, isn't he? (laughs) Not to mention that the author is laying on the foreshadowing a little thick at this point. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. Throughout this section of the saga, I think it, it's all over the place. There's a, a lot of ominous clouds on the horizon throughout the next probably 20 chapters or so. Yeah, now it provides a sense of tragic inevitability to events. And you can see how each decision is reasonable in its own right, mm-hmm. but every one is bringing the story closer to the cataclysm. Yeah. And slowly, with each decision, I see that we're seeing the Njalsons turning from sympathetic figures into something more complicated. So the inevitability, so the inevitability here is that for whatever reason, the Njalsons are predisposed to believe any slander against Halskold, uh, and mm-hmm. eventually Morth works them up to the point that they're they're actually ready to attack. Right now, Njal knows nothing about this, right? Yeah, um, I think they rightly suspect that Njal would talk them out of it, so they keep him out sure. of the loop. And when Bergthor <laughs> asks uh, why their sons are talking with Morth all the time, Njal says, "I'm not in on their planning, but." 
I was never left out when their plans were good. Well, at least Nyal knows that more of this trouble. Oh, yeah. Well, everyone knows that he's well, trouble. everyone else. Yeah. But his sons and even Kari are under Morth's influence now. And they all agree to go off and attack Hoskold. And that's exactly what they do. Hoskold's alone in his field sowing seeds when the Njalsons, Kari, and Morth all attack him. Scarpathen mm-hmm. shouts, Don't bother taking to your heels, Vita Neskoli. And he strikes a blow with his axe at Hoskold's head. As the others close in on him, Hoskold whispers, May God help me and forgive you. And then he's hacked to death. Right. Dying like Thomas a Beckett. Yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, it feels so deliberate as an authorial moment. I mean, not the not Thomas a Beckett specifically, but the Christian character. Right. I think the Christianity of the island is really in focus here. Mm. And again, it puts the Nialsons on the side of those against the faith. It does. Or at least against a good Christian man. Uh, men like that should burn, I say. Wow. Mm, that's foreshadowing. I guess, <laughs> you know, honestly, if, I, if I'm if i looking at it this way, I, I'm not surprised by Grimm. I expect that kind of thing. Well, I mean, he's always following someone around. Yeah. Right? But Scarpathen's supposed to be clever. He's independent, <laughs> but he's clever. Mm. And Helgi, we know from uh, earlier chapters, has some kind of foresight. And Kari, well, I love Kari. I expect better of Kari. <laughs> disappointing, Yalsons. Very disappointing. Bad form. Yeah, it's that Othello moment, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the tragedy here is that they allow themselves to believe a dishonest man because they already believe what he's saying. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. Or or at least that they want to, right? Mm. I mean, it depends on whether you think they're ultimately motivated by, by insecurity or jealousy. Yeah, either way, Mord's not done messing with their heads just yet. Mm. While the group of them is still standing over the corpse, Mord suggests another plan. Another one? Yeah. How does this guy keep them all straight? Yeah, I don't know about you, but I keep all my nefarious plans in a little black book in my back pocket. That explains a lot, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lost it in the bathroom the other day. It took me forever to find it. <laughs> Very embarrassing. Couldn't go through with any of my plans. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, well, Morth's plan is that he will pretend to have nothing to do with the killing, and which is really uh-huh. brilliant. And, he, <laughs> and he's actually going to be the one to give notice of the suit for it. I mean, that way he can... Wait, 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 That way he can royally screw over the Njalsons if he wants to and keep himself free of all suspicion. Well, sure, but that's not what he's doing, really, or or at least uh-huh. not directly. He's planning to foul things up to ruin the case against them. Yeah, but, of course, as we know, Moore's long-term plan is to build resentment against the Njalsons for this killing and get them killed in retaliation. Right. I mean, screwing up the case is a way of frustrating everyone in the region and fomenting that anger against Njal's family. He's already pulled Seriously? them into a, a, a nasty mm-hmm. scheme, and now yeah. he's going to make it so justice can't be served. Yep. Morv is a real scumbag, but you have to give him credit for scheming. Oh, yeah. I mean, compared to someone like Thorgir Buttering and Rekdala Saga <laughs> yes. or, or Narfi and Cormac, uh, Morv's a master of the craft. Yeah, there's a definite evil genius quality to him. Oh, and speaking of evil genius, uh, this is where we're starting to see the strands of this story coming together. Uh, remember, and this is going back now quite a ways in the saga, remember that Morth is the son of Valgard the Grey and Un, the daughter of Morth Fiddle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that. Uh, quiet, smart guy. Uh, <laughs> Un was only able to marry Valgard because of the dowry she got back from her first husband, Hrut. Mm-hmm. And she only got that money back with the help of her cousin, Gunnar Hamundersen, and Gunnar's good friend, Njal Thorgerson. Mm. So, in essence, Gunnar and Njal created the circumstances that allowed Morth to be born. 
And now, Morth's already destroyed Gunnar, and he's coming after Njal's family now. Oh, what a tangled he, web. He's an implacable force of destruction that they created. He's essentially nemesis. He is. Yeah, that reading actually makes a lot of sense. Uh, but for now, let's get back to watching him work. Let's see what he does. Uh, Okay, so he manages to arrange that he's the one who announces the case against the Nialsons and convinces the Sigfusons and their allies to let him deal with the action for the slaying. After all, why wouldn't you trust a man like Morth? Yeah, because he's awful. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> but while Morth's busy manipulating everyone in the region, Hoskold's wife, Hildegun, is told of her husband's death. She mm-hmm. retrieves the body, but carefully wipes up Hoskold's blood with his cloak and then folds it and puts it carefully away in a chest. Right. No, that, that's ominous. Uh, it's another uh, Thomas a Beckett moment, by the way. Yes, it is. What's even more ominous is Njal's reaction when his sons tell him what they've done. It's fair to say that I would rather have lost two sons as long as Hoskold was still alive. Yeah. And Scarpathen says, you can be excused for saying that since you're old, and it's to be expected that this would touch you deeply. It's not my old age. It's the fact that I know more clearly than you what will follow. And what will follow? My death, the death of my wife, and the death of all my sons. Right. Mm. So that's it. From this point forward, Njal is laboring under the belief that he and his entire family are fated to die. That's going to make things more difficult going forward. And it also means that we now have to wonder whether from this point, Njal is working to avoid fate or to bring it on. Yeah, that doesn't mean that the Njalsons are taking his prophecy lying down. Mm -hmm. They're going to be looking for all the help they can get. Which means that we're heading toward a showdown. And both sides are working to build support. Right. Part 32. Hoskold's Cloak. So this next part of the saga is largely concerned with setting up the two sides in the lawsuit over Hoskold Thrainson's death. On the one hand, we've got the Njalsons and their allies. And on the other, the family and friends of Hoskold and his wife, Hildegun Starketh's daughter. Yeah, the Njalsons are going to be organizing their own support, but Hoskold's case is going to be pursued by Hildegun's uncle, Flossi Thordeson. Right. Now, the author is going to be moving back and forth between the two groups as they build their coalitions of support. It's an effective literary technique to heighten the tension. Unfortunately, it's kind of hard to follow in audio form. <laughs> uh, so I think it's best to rearrange the order of events in the saga a little to make things more straightforward. Yeah, I think we have to. This is a barrage of names, and and trying to keep it all straight will be confusing enough as it is. Right. So those of you who are reading along or who read read in preparation for this, if it seems like things are a little bit out of order, that's why. Mm -hmm. Uh, So let's look at Flossie's group first. Flossie moves quickly, and he sends word out to several leading men to ask for support in the lawsuit against the Njalsons. But Morth has already started a case against the Njalsons. Yeah, and Flossie knows about that. But he's not sure he can trust Morth, understandably. Mm Mm-hmm. And so he starts a parallel project of building his own support base. Smart man. Yes, he is. As we're going to see, Flossie's a formidable guy, and not least because he's smart. He's usually in control of himself, and unlike many of the other figures in the saga at this point, he keeps his own counsel. Yeah, and that's pretty much the definition of an admirable figure in the sagas. Right. So that's already a bad sign for the Njalsons. I mean, not mm-hmm. just that they've got a man like this against them, but that they've earned the enmity of someone like Flossie. Mm-hmm. As we were saying earlier, the, the, the Njalsons are in the wrong now, and their enemies are going to, and actually their friends too, are, mm-hmm. are going to start including some good men as well as miserable jerks like Morth. Absolutely. Uh, Flutzi's a man with connections to other important men as well. For example, his first messenger is sent to Hall of Sitha, 
and Hall's son Yot. Yeah, th- this is the same Hall who led the Christian faction at the Althing in 1000. Yeah, uh, Flossie is married to Hall's daughter Steinvor, and so Hall and Lyot are guaranteed to come to his aid. Lyot Halson is worth keeping an eye on. He's one of the most promising men in Iceland, and there's a mm-hmm. prophecy that once he's attended three all things and returned home safely, he'll be destined to be one of the greatest and longest-lived chieftains ever. And oh. this is already going to be his second trip to the all thing. Oh, nice for him. Yeah. Uh, but this isn't all Flossie does. His first attempt earns him a minor army of support. He builds a coalition of men from near and far, and it's an impressive list. Uh, Cole Thorstenson, Glum Hlidason, uh Girleif, the son of Onan Boxback, uh, Malvolf Kettleson, Sert Asbjarnason of Kirkubear, Kolbane Aelson, Thorgrim Showboat, Lovmund Ulfson, Half the Wise, Hall of Sitha, and Runolf, the son of Ulf Algothi. Now, I know that you didn't really need to go through that entire list, but you just wanted to sneak in a lot of nicknames, right? Yeah. Onund Boxback, Thorgrim Showboat. <laughs> I know. I'm mm-hmm. itching to get to the study of names in this saga. But I, I, even so, this is a crazy list. I mean, we're firmly in 80s movie montage territory here. Or maybe Seven Samurai. Yeah, that sounds Flossie's, good. Flossie's building a dream team to join his side. And the Njalsons are doing the same. Can, can we have a double montage on both uh, sides? The author is sure trying. Uh, and we know, or at least we can strongly suspect, that this is going to end in blood. So there are major consequences here to having the bigger, better, stronger team on your side. And maybe the more respectable ones as well. Uh, men like Hall of Sitha are generally pretty well regarded. Right. Now, for anyone who's forgotten, Hall of Sitha was an important early convert to Christianity. So that's a good get for Flossie. Yeah, and Flossie's not done yet. He also mm-hmm. meets and allies with the Sigfusons, who are united in calling for a violent attack on the Njalsons. Which is not surprising, really. I mean, there may once have been an alliance between those families, but that was before Scarpe the Njalsson killed the oldest Sigfusson brother, Thrain. And then, of course, all the Njalsons killed Hoskold, Thrain's son. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can see why there'd be a little resentment by this point. Yeah, no, it's, it's more than a little. Uh, even Kettle of Mork, who we've been saying up till now is torn between the families. Remember, he's married to Njal's daughter, Thorgerd. He's a brother-in-law of the Njalsons. Right. Even Kettle is now openly siding with his brothers against the Njalsons. Okay, but Kettle is still trying to keep things under control. He tells Flossie, I would prefer to have a peaceful settlement between us. Sure, but he then goes on to say, I've sworn not to quit until it's settled one way or the other, and I'll stake my life on this. So, yeah, he may not be howling for Njalsson blood like his brothers, but he's committed to spilling it if necessary. Uh, and that means that Flossi now has all six living Sigvasons, all their sons, and their nephew, Grani Gunnarsson, all supporting him as well. It might be easier to name everyone in the region who's not on Flossi's side, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's almost overkill, or it would be if the Njalsons weren't such an impressive group in their own right. Uh, but right now, it starts to look like Flossi's got quantity and quality on his side. Absolutely. I mean, it's less important to remember all the names we've thrown out than just to appreciate how large a following Flossi's able to command. Um, some of them are his personal friends and relatives, like his in-laws or Colby and Ailson, uh, who's Flossi's nephew. But others are just decent men who are appalled by the Njalsons' killing of such a good man like Hoskold. Mm. And many of the group are actively pushing for violent revenge. Grani Gunnarsson, uh, son of Njal's old friend Gunnar, tells Flossie, I would never make a full peace with the Njalsons, and I want to be there when they're all killed. 
Okay, well, that's not terribly surprising because that's exactly how Grani Gunnarsson behaves. Yes. Um, so <laughs> it's not, not, not exactly a shock that he would say something like that. No, no. Yeah, there's always one guy shouting for blood, and he's usually the punk of the group. Yeah. Yeah, Grani's definitely that. Uh, for a son of peace-loving Gunnar Hamundersen, uh, he's got a nasty mouth on him. <laughs> <laughs> of course, he's also the son of Holgarth Longlegs, so that's probably not entirely surprising. Right. He, he's also got more mouth than courage. Uh, as Flossie says, You and many others are asking for something which, as time goes by, you would pay much money not to have taken part in. Flossie, at least, knows that an open war with the Nelsons would come at a heavy price. So Flossie's hoping for a legal solution to the killing, but his supporters are mostly people who want blood vengeance against the Njalsons. Um mm-hmm. And again, remember, the Njalsons, and through their father Njal, have been throwing their weight around in the region quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So we've, we're, we're in an awkward situation in the region. Yeah, it is. Uh, but only some of Flossie's supporters are personally involved in the feud. Some of them are third-party figures who might be motivated by the desire to take Njal's family down a few social pegs, yeah. which you're suggesting. You mentioned a couple episodes back that Njal's desire for political independence was starting to become an issue, and I think we're starting to see the blowback from that now. In fact, not everyone Flossie approaches is even willing to join the posse. Mm-hmm. Flossie approaches Ingjald of Kelder, for example, who's married to another of Flossie's nieces. But Ingjald says, I'm in a difficult position here because of my connection to Njal and his sons, and other large matters that stand in the way. Mm-hmm. I mean, John, what's the story here? What's going on? Well, Ingjald's another guy in an awkward spot because of his links to both clans in this feud. He's married to Flossie's niece, Throslag Ale's daughter, but he's also the brother of Hrodni Hoskel's daughter, the mother of Njal's illegitimate son, Hoskel Njalsson. I hope everyone's keeping track of all this. You you know you're supposed to listen with a pen and paper, right? <laughs> Probably a pencil because you need to do erasing. Right. right. The short version there is that he is the uncle of Njal's illegitimate son. Yeah, who was killed by the Sigfusson's brother-in-law looting. Yep. That's probably the other large matter Ingeld refers to. Mm-hmm. He may be obligated to support Flosi, but he's not happy about siding against his nephew's family alongside the family of the guy who killed him. Mm-hmm. Which makes a lot of sense. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of these complications going on here. It's one of the things that makes this saga so remarkable. Um, yeah. it's, it's a very, very complex saga. Um, but you get to see how this, how the political and legal factions and, mm-hmm. and social tensions all kind of come together. Um, at right. this point in the saga, almost everyone has some connection to one or both sides of the developing feud. And so each man has to weigh his loyalties and figure out where he stands. It's brilliant. Right. Yeah, Ingeld's another one of those figures whose story is kind of being told in the margins of this saga. Yeah, and he's been present at events like Gunnar's wedding to Holgerth, but he's been a background figure. And now he's moving into the foreground. But it's not clear which way his allegiance will turn at this point. Oh, I'm glad you brought that up, the wedding. Uh, we talk about the ways this author plays a long game with his foreshadowing. And there's a cool mm-hmm. kind of Easter egg at Gunnar's wedding all those years ago. Uh, they were all sitting yes, around. Yes, all those years and episodes ago, I think it's worth mentioning. That's right. Uh, so when the guests sat down at the table for the wedding feast, they were arranged on the sides they'd eventually take in the feud that's breaking out now, two mm-hmm. generations later. The Sigfusons, Morth, Valgard, Runolf, and Ulf Argo the, were all on one side of the table, and the Njals and, and the Nelsons rather, and all their future allies were on the other side. Right? There's no hint at that time that this is foreshadowing, and there's no way to catch it on a first reading. But it really jumps out at you on a second reading. Yeah, that's such a cool detail. Now, 
of course, I have to ask, which side was Ingyald sitting on? <laughs> That's a know? good question. Uh, yeah, he was sitting with Njal's family. Mm. Uh, but as of right now, he's still trying to decide which side to back in the fight. Sure, and what makes this section of the saga so compelling is partly the jumbled motives of the people involved. Mm-hmm. We've got good men, bad men, opportunists and idealists all choosing sides. Mm-hmm. It's not always a simple matter to decide who has the greater claim on your loyalty. And the resulting factions are both going to have some great men and some sketchier figures among them. Right, so there's no real way of deciding what's objectively the right course of action here. Just sides to choose from. Well, maybe not quite that. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that both legally and morally speaking, the Njalsons are on the defensive. And I think that's mm-hmm. right. But they're going to have some good men on their side as well. And Flosi's coalition is going to make some deals with the devil while trying to force the Njalsons to account for what they've done. Yeah, and speaking of uh, dealing with the devil, Flosi also has to figure out how to handle Morth Valgretson, who, remember, has already started a proceeding against the Njalsons with the blessing of Hoskold's family, the Sigfusons. Even though he was one of the men who killed Hoskold. Yeah, but nobody else knows that. Uh, so Flosi consults his ally, Runolf, who's uh, Morth's first cousin. Uh, their fathers, Ulf or- Orgothi and Valgard the Grey, are brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he asks Runolf, what's happened with the case so far? The panel of neighbors has been summoned, and notice of the slaying has been given. Who gave the notice? Morth Valgardson. Can he be trusted? Well, he is my kinsman, but I must say in truth that more evil than good comes from him. See, that's an interesting conversation to me. Yeah. Uh, we know that Flosi already knows all that. So what's he doing? Is Flosi testing Runolf, or is he really unsure whether Morth is, un- is trustworthy? Well, Flosi and Runolf are friends, so it seems more likely he's looking for information about Morth before he has to deal with him one-on-one. And mm-hmm. as his cousin, Runolf's the most likely one to know something useful about this. Yeah, and Runolf's not pulling punches here. More evil than good comes from him is pretty strong meat. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, other men in Flosi's camp are also criticizing Morth in more general terms. And now that Flosi knows that, he needs to talk to Hildegun, who's his niece and Hoskold's widow. And that's an awkward meeting. Well, yeah. Uh, Flosi's making no secret of his preference to seek peaceful resolution if possible, and Hildegun wants Hoskold paid for in blood. And she's not the sort to let Flosi run things. No. We were already told that she's a strong-willed woman, and she shows it here. She arranges great compliments to Flosi during his visit, including setting up the high seat of the house for him, which is really reserved for royal guests or people of high import. Um, It it kind of puts Flosi off to be sitting there. Mm -hmm. But she also, once he's sitting there, weeps in his face and presses him to seek blood vengeance. Right now, Flosi knows what she's up to, but he just admonishes her for making fun of him by offering him a high seat. Mm -hmm. And when she cries, he says... It's right that you should weep for a good man. (laughs) He misses the whole point, doesn't he? Well, no, he's pretty clearly trying to get out of there without making a commitment. Yeah, but Hildegun is a determined widow. Mm -hmm. And when Flossi seems hesitant, she reminds him that his brothers once killed a man in revenge for their father. And when that doesn't seem to move him, she brings in Hoskold's cloak, the same cloak that Flossi gave him uh, a few Mm -hmm. chapters ago, and for us, uh, I think, an episode or two ago. Mm Mm-hmm. It's caked in dried gore from when she used it to sop up his blood. And then she puts it on his shoulders and it shakes out all that dry blood. It rains down and covers him. This is the worst after dinner game ever. 
or you know it's a metaphor <laughs> but it, it gets a lot worse she then shouts in his face in the name of god and all good men i charge you by all the powers of christ and by your courage and manliness to avenge hoskold's wounds or else be an object of contempt to all men see you definitely get the sense that some Christian stuff got lost in translation during Iceland's conversion. <laughs> what, yeah, like, what would Jesus do? He right. would kick some ass is what he would do. <laughs> He'd murder all his enemies. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this certainly reads as if the cultural precepts of revenge and honor are still operating, to say the least. I mean, well, and this is another example of manliness being a potential vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? or at least the social dimension of manliness. Flossie's angry at Hildegund for forcing him into a tight corner here. In fact, he calls her the worst monster and uses an old chestnut. Cold are the counsels of women. Uh, and that sort of backs her off a little bit. Yeah, but it does work. You know, Hildegund gets her way. Mm-hmm. He's helpless in the face of this demand. Oh, absolutely he is. Uh, but he's also overcome by emotion. And his face turns red, then pale, and then black. That That's a strong reaction, but... Understandable, given that he's covered in his friend's blood, right. we're wearing the gift cloak that he gave him. And I think that's that's obviously the point. Mm-hmm. Generally, men in the sagas are embarrassed when they betray their emotions in this way. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, with his emotions visible now, Flosi storms out of the house. But he's committed now, even to violence if necessary. Right. And by the way, that sequence of red and pale and black as a shocked and emotional response is something we've actually seen before. It is. Wait, Red, black. It's just something from uh, Ragnar Saga, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, your favorite cow wrestler, Ivar the Boneless, turned those same colors when he learned the details of his father's oh, death. I love it. Wow. So this is a trope in the literature, the red, black. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the indication is that Flossie's barely containing himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, his anger is directed at Hildegund, but partly because he feels the force of what she's saying. He may think she's leading him to ruin, but her demands really just echo the cultural pressure Flosi would already be feeling. Yes. He's supposed to want to kill in retaliation for violence done to his family. Right? This is just so essentially, essentially, sorry to interrupt yeah. you. Yeah. We're seeing in Flosi another version of the same kind of hesitation we saw in Gunnar. Exactly. That's exactly where I was heading with that. Ah, see, I saved you the time. Silence. <laughs> this is one of the saga's themes. The difficulty of walking a righteous path in a culture that pressures men to act violently or at least to appear to want violence. Mm. The law is written the way it is in response to a cultural assumption that violence will beget violence. Which puts terrible pressure on those men who would prefer to seek nonviolent redress. Especially when those men have become Christian. Yeah, well, especially for a Christian audience contending with this kind of transitional moment, even in the uh, the 14th century, or even in the 13th century and into the 14th century. Absolutely. Right? And this is why Hildegund's invocation of Christ to reinforce that cultural pressure toward violence is so interesting. It is, but uh, we do have a feud to be getting on with. Fair enough. So, if I may, Flossi leaves Hildegund's farm with a new determination to drive a hard bargain with the Njolsons, and possibly to force them into a violent reckoning. Right, now that's going to please the hotheads among his supporters, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of them. Yeah, but it's also easier said than done. It's not like they're going up against a group of nobodies. In fact, uh, I think it's high time that we looked at the Njalsons' efforts to build a team of supporters. Part 33, Scarpathen's Grin. Part 33, huh? Yeah. 
<laughs> so the Nielsen's have their work cut out, don't they? Yeah. It seems like Flosi's gathering up every single important family in the area to support his cause. Yeah, well, not quite everyone. Uh, the Nielsen's first call is on Osgrim Alita Grimson, who promises his support. Well, I mean, Osgrim's an old friend of the family, so mm-hmm. that's not terribly surprising. Uh, his daughter, Thorhall, is married to Helgi Njalsson, and his son, Thorhall, is is Njal's foster son. Mm-hmm. He's a trusted friend, which is just what the Njalsons need right now. So all that uh, weaving together of families Njal did while arranging his kids' marriages, it's uh, starting to bear fruit. Well, that's why you weave those marriages. Mm-hmm. Um, but even Asgrim says that this is going to be a very difficult situation, because the slaying is spoken badly of all over the land. I don't know why I talk like that. <laughs> over the land! You're, you're back into the Bane voice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand. Everyone speaks badly of the slaying. Uh, yeah, it doesn't sound promising. Yeah, it could be worse, I suppose. Not by much. It's, it's dangerous to throw your lot in with men who are likely to become outlaws. Oh, absolutely it is. Uh, the support of a man like Osgrim is invaluable, but the brothers don't have a lot of other friends. This actually isn't new for them, right? I mean, it's not like they've had a ton of allies before this point in the story. They yeah. tend to work alone. No, that's fair. Uh, we mentioned a couple episodes back that the Nielsen's often act alone. Yeah. And uh, later, uh, they have at least Kari Solmundersen as their only backup, but that's it. Uh, they're unusually isolated socially. And now that they need friends, they're finding that their habit of going it alone has consequences. Poor lonely Nielsen's. Well, not exactly. Uh, Forever but- alone. For- <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, for a literature that emphasizes again and again how admirable it is to be quiet, strong-willed, and self-sufficient, it's a moment like this that spotlights just how much a uh, well-tended social network matters to a saga figure. Yeah. Yeah, you remember my thingman uh, Bjorn the Hitoral champion. Mm. He, he had a similar problem. As he became more and more socially isolated because of his strength, the, the local community <laughs> turned against him. <laughs> Okay, you got a little bit of bias showing there. Uh, hmm. Bjorn became socially isolated because he kept killing his neighbor's sons. That is slander. <laughs> that is vile slander, in fact. I, it's true, but it's not nice to say, and there are circumstances that are worth considering there. Yeah, I'm he sure you think so. He has good reasons. Yeah, I'm sure you think so. Look, listen, we've been over all of that before, and I'm confident that the people agree with me on this one. Yeah, you tell yourself that. Uh, I do, every night as ret- I go to sleep. <laughs> Returning, I believe that. Returning <laughs> to the Nialsons, uh they're, they're not totally isolated. They do have Osgrim, and Osgrim's got some good connections that he can try to exploit. But he tells the brothers that they'll need to go to the All Thing early to meet with the heavy hitters. Yes, he name drops two chieftains, uh, Goodman the Powerful and some guy named Snorri Gothi. Uh, well, Snorri Gothi, you say? <laughs> uh, well, he thinks that these two powerful figures, or at least... A powerful mm. figure and Snorri Gothi uh, will help them. See, I've changed. Wow, those are, those are sour grapes. I've those really are, turned. Those are bitter apples. Even years later. Yeah, well, <laughs> there's a list of others as well. But again, Asgrim wants to get them to the all things so that they can make the rounds and try to build their coalition as fast and as strongly as possible. Right, we should be clear that things aren't totally helpless. Njal is going with them, as is Osgrim's son Thorhall, who is still Njal's foster son, and has learned a great deal of law from him. Yeah, and Thorhall isn't the most reassuring ally, though. Yeah. When the Njalsons laugh at him for not being dressed as well as the others. So Thorhall responds, 
Uh, well, I will have thrown these clothes away by the time I've taken action for the death of my foster father, y'all. So uh, Thor Hall's just a simple country lawyer. Is that what's going just on? Just a simple country lawyer uh-huh. trying to do good in this world. <laughs> yeah, that's a. But as a as a statement, that's something of a conversation stopper. The way to kill Not the when mood, delivered Thor that Hall. Way. Right. <laughs> Everyone's yeah. just charmed by his southern hospitality. That's right. Ah, oh, well, I would throw these clothes away. Um, yeah, is this the uh, first actual prediction we've had about Njal's death? Uh, sort of. Uh, we did have a reference to it once before. This is uh, back when Gunnar asked whether Njal could foresee what would cause his own death. And Njal said, yes, something that people would least expect. Yeah. It's not a prediction, really, but it suggests that Njal knows something about it. Yeah, well, and we also just said recently that, you know, he he said to Scarpe, then we're, we're all going to die. Right, we're all so, faded, right. But outside of uh, Njal himself saying mm-hmm. something, this is the first time we hear right. other people mentioning right. it. Yeah. Oh, and one more thing. Mm-hmm. On the way to the all thing, they stop at a farm of Njal's nephews. Um, I don't think we've mentioned them before, but uh, Njal does have nephews. Yes, he does. Uh, Njal has a half-brother named Holtathor, who has two sons, uh, Thorleaf Crow and Thorgrim the Tall. They're committed to Uncle Njal, and they're troublesome cousins. Yes, so altogether the Njalsons have about about 30 men with them when they reach the All Thing. Right. It's not too shabby. Nah, but not enough. And mm-hmm. they also lack big names that would carry weight at the All Thing. These are all just guys that are close by and related. Well, they've got one. I mean, they've got Asgrim, but they've got one more. Among the 30 men is Hjalti Skegjason, who they pick up along the way. Oh, this is the same Hjalti that we talked about during the conversion episode, right? Right, the Freya's dog guy. A dog? I don't think he said dog, but that's the one we're talking about, yeah. <laughs> he should be a big help. Yeah. And to be honest, he's not even all that enthusiastic about helping them. At, at one point, he tries to ride off, but Asgrim grabs him and won't let him escape. Right. Truly, Hjalti is a prince among men. Mm-hmm. But he is valuable for information, if nothing else. Um, he actually knows what Flosi's up to. And so Njal learns just how many men Flosi's got. And more importantly, he learns who they are. Right. Which, of course, just means that Njal knows exactly how outmatched they are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They need more support. And so they sweep the all thing looking for new friends. It's a really dynamic sequence that's yeah, about to happen. Yeah. This is iconic. Uh Eight of them walk in single file from one booth to the next, like a uh, a really sort of heavily armed version of the Abbey Road cover. Uh, <laughs> right. Asgrim Alita Grimson is first, followed by Helgi Njalsson, then Kari, then Grim Njalsson, then Skarpathen Njalsson, then Thorhall, and then the nephews Thorgrim the Tall and Thorleaf Crow. Mm-hmm. So where, where's Hjalti? I mean, for that matter, where's Njal in this group? Well, I mean, Njal's an old man, and they're trying to exhibit a show of strength here. And Hjalti's acting a little squirrely, so it's not surprising they decide not to include him. Okay. Uh, so we've got a lot of booths to visit. Where where do you want to start? Well, I think we're going to have to compress this part a little bit. Uh, the very short version is that they visit the booths of six influential men. Gizur the White, who we've seen before. Scofty Lawspeaker, who we've seen before. Snorri Gothi. Hoff the Wealthy. Gudmund the Powerful. And Thorkel Bully. That's quite a lineup. And and two of them are your thingmen. Is that right? That's correct. Mm, maybe I'll get some of those boys yeah. on my team. <laughs> you can have Thorkel Bully. <laughs> you know, I would take Thorkel Bully. And we'll uh, see why shortly. Right. No, so we've seen most of these guys before. Uh, obviously, Snorri was a major figure in Erebidja Saga. Uh, Scofty Lawspeaker appeared in several of the sagas that we've done already. Just briefly. Very uh, briefly. No, no, no. 
Uh, Gizzard the White has been present throughout Njal's saga. Goodman the Powerful features in several sagas. And even Thorkel the Bully actually showed up before uh, in Rekdala Saga. He Did was he a, really? Yeah, he was a supporter of an obnoxious man named Aistine. I do not remember that at all. Yep. Mm. Did we talk about that? Yes, we did. Time flies, John. <laughs> yeah, it was the saga be... we did before this one, by the way. Last year. <laughs> <laughs> and so in this saga, each of these guys offers support from a region of the island. So they, they yeah. represent the major figures of all of Iceland. Right. Now, we're at the point in this saga where all Iceland is being drawn into the feud. Yes. Uh, but not all of these men are interested in helping the Njalsons. Remember, they're not necessarily popular, and they've done a pretty horrific thing in killing Hoskold. Mm-hmm. And don't forget the Scarpathen problem. Oh, I hadn't forgotten. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've seen hints throughout the saga of Scarpathen's bitter, mocking humor, uh, especially his famous crooked smile. So, Andy, why is he so cynical? Why is he so cynical? Well, a couple of scholars talk about the way Scarpathen's grin seems almost to hover over the story, especially at this point. My favorite is Lao Sun Ai calling him a malevolent Cheshire cat amid a sea of poker faces. <laughs> That's a great turn of phrase. Yeah. There aren't a lot of opportunities to drop Lewis Carroll references in the Saga podcast. No. Well, I couldn't miss this chance. Uh, now, I tend to think of his grin as evidence of his sort of bitter appreciation of the absurdities of life. Mm-hmm. Uh, call it fate if you want, since this is a saga. But Scarpe then shows himself to be kind of wryly resigned to the world's insanity and whatever it brings his way. As the saga goes on, he seems increasingly to inhabit that bitterness and wryness. Hmm. That actually reminds me of you. Uh, what? <laughs> I am a ray of sunshine in a degraded world. How dare you? <laughs> You're my ray of sunshine, John. <laughs> no, I see what you mean, though. It, it, it's like it warps him. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and now, as fate seems to be pre- preparing to destroy his entire family, Scarpathen's face is almost terrifying. Right. For a culture that really held that a man could be fated, Scarpathen's grin is a rictus of ironic despair, and he must look like a man forsaken by the gods. You know, when I woke up this morning, I would, I'd never imagined I would hear the phrase rictus of ironic despair. What? No, there's nothing wrong with that. I just say it's I a, didn't think a, I would hear that. Now I, I've heard it. I always, I love the word rictus. I don't get to use it often enough. <laughs> All right, let's visit some booths. All right. Uh, the first to visit is uh, Gizra the White, who, uh, remember, was a foe of Njal years ago because his relative Otkil's feud with Gunnar caused them to meet under unfortunate circumstances. But that's all water under the bridge now, and Gizur agrees to support the Njalsons in their case. Well, it's a little more complicated than that, I think. Mm-hmm. Gizur may or may not still resent Njal, but he's not really being asked for help by the Njalsons. He's being asked by Osgrim, which is important. Uh-huh. And that matters because? It, well, it matters because Osgrim has a claim on Geezer as a kinsman. Mm-hmm. So, again, family relationships come into right. play here. Right. Geezer's sister, Joran, is Osgrim's mother. Well, that makes sense. A man's relationship to his maternal uncles was vitally important within a family. And that also means that Njal is foster father to Geezer's great nephew, Thorhall. And the Njalsons are Thorhall's foster brothers. So, of course, he'll help them. Okay, great. Uh, so, the Njalsons are one for one. Well, they aren't all going to be that easy, though. Uh, no. No. So, let's move forward. Yeah. So, the, the next booth they visit is the Olfus group to speak with Skafti Thorison or Skafti the Law Speaker. Oh, can we just skip this part? No, no, no. I think this is important. I mean, this is your <sighs> thingman. And what a prize he's turning out to be, John. Look, let's hang on. Let's explain what, what happens in the scene first. Then I'll talk thingman. 
Okay. Allow me. Uh-huh. The Nielsen's committee leader, Osgrim, I've been waiting for this for so long. Yeah, I know long. you have. <laughs> he, Osgrim asks for Scofty's help, and Scofty responds, I'd hoped for something else oh. to keep your troubles out of my house. Uh-huh. Hmm? I, I don't much care for the voice you're using there. The man's a law speaker. <laughs> he was chosen for his booming and wide-reaching voice. Listen, I, I can't help what he sounds like. That's <laughs> historically accurate as far as I know. Uh, Scofty then asks who the fifth man in line is. Mm-hmm. He says, The big man with the oh. pale and luckless look about him, though fierce and troll-like. Yeah, that's just what we were talking about. I'm ignoring your voice at this point. Historically accurate. Uh, but this is what we were talking about. Scarpe then looks like a man struggling under a terrible fate. And the men that they're asking for help are noticing it. And we know how luck plays a role in the sagas and mm-hmm. the kind of decisions people make. And once they see that this guy's marked with an ill luck, they want nothing to do with it. That's right. Pale, luckless, and troll-like is no way to go through life, Scarpathen. No. And Scarpathen replies, You know who I am, but I have no need to ask who you are. You're Scofty Thoradson, though you called yourself Brushhead after you killed Ketchel of Elda when you shaved your head and smeared tar on it. Oh. Later you went to Thorolf Lofsen at Eriar, and he smuggled you abroad in some flour sacks. Now, John, I have to say, that's pretty shameful behavior. Uh-huh. Uh, in the interest of keeping our story moving, I'm going I'm to resist, you know, I'm going to resist the urge to really launch into an explanation of why this is nonsense. Ah. I'll just remind you that even Robert Cook notes uh, in his translation that this treatment of Scofty is bizarre. And that there's no evidence anywhere else in the sagas of any of these stories being true. Eh, lost manuscripts. No one else in the in the saga even independently verifies Scarpathen's story. Well, I would say that it fits into the broader cynicism about the law that this saga starts to show in these latter sections. Um, I would also add that we've seen before criticisms of Scotty Law Speaker's character in this but saga. Let's Always move on. in this saga. Uh, you this know, author has a bug of his hairs. butt about Scofty. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh-huh. And we just want to leave a lasting impression here that Scofty's lame. Oh. Uh, <laughs> uh, so who are they going to visit next? Oh, look, it's Snorri Gothi, John. Uh-huh. Another one of your thingmen. Uh-huh. Yeah, don't get too <laughs> smug. First of all, these names are being brought up because they're the leading men of Iceland. Doesn't make them good men. Which suggests that I've been choosing well. Second, you know. you know, you know that you'd have taken Snorri and Skofti in a second if I hadn't. And I've got that on record in those episodes. Now, you've got no proof of that. I do. <laughs> whereas I note that Snorri's also going to bear the brunt of Scarpathen's insult. Well, I mean, so does everybody else. Nah. But to be brief, Snorri says he's got too much on his plate already. And he won't join the Njalsen side in the case. But he also promises not to help Flosi either. Ah, so he's a conscientious objector, if you will. He's neutral. Yes. At least right now he is. The author at this point calls Snorri the wisest of the men in Iceland who could not foretell the future. He was good to his friends, but fierce to his enemies. Yes, we've heard that before about him. Yes, and uh, as we saw in Erbija Saga, he's a cagey guy. Yeah. It's safe to assume he's up to something, but Snorri plays a long game, and so we won't know what he's up to for a while. Yeah, and to be fair, I still love you, Snorri Gothi. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Come over to my side, please. Never. Nah. In the meantime, it's his turn to exchange abuse with Scarpathen, so we have to cover that. Right, which isn't such a great plan. Uh, 
Snorri's promised to stay out of things. Why would Scarpathen want to annoy him? Again, Scarpathen's under a lot of strain here, and he's not shy about letting off a little steam at anyone who gives him an excuse. And since Snorri doesn't help, and he and Snorri actually calls him uh, a pale-looking individual with a toothy sneer, um, <laughs> he then he, he also Snorri predicts that he has only a short time left to live. So even though well, he doesn't have foresight, he has a, a good well, sense of how this is going to play out. It's a good thing Snorri can't foretell the future then. True enough. He has no but, idea. Uh, Scarpathen's still annoyed, and he says, You need to be avenging your father rather than predicting my fate. Yeah. Now, for most saga figures, that would be a deadly insult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would. Uh, now, listeners might remember this from way back in Gizli Saga, which we've already covered. Mm-hmm. Uh, Snorri's father was killed before Snorri was born. And the killer was Snorri's uncle, Gizli Sorsen. And although Gizli did eventually die for the killing, Snorri never took a hand in the revenge. And he's been hearing about it ever since. Right. But Snorri's an unusual man. Uh, He plays things close to the vest, and he only says, Many have said that already, and I'm not troubled by such words. I love it. That's a good answer. He's an interesting dude. He's just not motivated by the same sorts of things that other men of his time obsess over. That's true. Some... Some, and not me necessarily, but I would say some would call him a little bit cowardly. He oh, tends not I to don't... get involved in the action himself. No, I think... And this is something that would invo- would require him to get actually involved. No, so. I think what that shows is a caginess and a craftiness, right? He's not averse to confrontation when it's necessary, but he chooses his time and place. He doesn't get himself involved in somebody else's timetable for when violence needs to happen. That's true, but in this case, this is violence that should happen, and he well, well we shouldn't we shouldn't do this. Yeah, it's not, yeah no, this is it's it's it, yeah, it's yeah. it's not. Yeah, and we definitely haven't seen the last of him in this saga. But uh, uh-huh. rather than dwell on Snorri Gothi, mm-hmm. let's go on to the next booth. Right, the next three booths, in fact: Hoff the wealthy, Gudmund the powerful, and Thorkel bully. Mm. Uh, the visit to Hoff goes badly. Uh, Hoff wants no part of the Nielsens. And Scarpathen responds by calling Hoff a milksop and bringing up the time Hoff's sister was kidnapped by raiders. Ah, uh, yeah. There's no hope. <laughs> no help there. No. Uh, Goodman the Powerful is only a little better. Like Snorri, he promises not to get involved on either side, although he leaves the door open to further conversation. But like everyone else, he comments on Scarpathen's appearance, and Scarpathen responds by saying, We're both men of poor luck, it's true. But Thorkel Bully and Thor Helgeson have been spreading slander about you, and you deserve blame for that. Mm. After that, the Njalsons show themselves the door. Well, that's awkward. Yeah, it is. You know who they visit next, though? Yes. <laughs> Thorkel Bully himself, the guy uh-huh. who they just said was slandering Goodland. Right. Now, you have to assume that they knew they couldn't get support from both of these guys. Well, maybe not. Uh, but maybe that isn't Osgrim's purpose in visiting this booth. But I suspect that Osgrim's just gotten exasperated with Scarpathen at this point. And he figures that if he's going to be obnoxious to everyone they visit, they might as well visit someone who deserves it. So, <laughs> John, would it interest you if I told you that uh, Thorkel Bully's patronymic is Thorgerson? Thorkel Thorgerson. Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, I know what you're getting at. This is the son of Thorgir the Gothi the law speaker who decided for the conversion of Iceland a few years ago. Mm, yes, he is. That's why we study genealogies, That's isn't right. it? That's right. So Thorkel's a very different man than his father. Mm-hmm. But it's always worth pointing out that these complicated family threads are being woven throughout the saga, and they bear fruit if you pay attention to them. Right. So uh, what kind of a man is he? 
The name Thorkel Bully doesn't inspire confidence. It shouldn't. Um, he's not an awful man, but he's, he's a difficult guy with a reputation as a fighter. Um, he's pretty confident in himself, and he likes to mm-hmm. brag that there's no man in Iceland who would refuse single combat with him. Well, that makes sense. In fact, um, his nickname can be translated as braggart or foul speech instead of bully. Nah, you're champing at the bit to get to those nicknames, aren't you? I'm misjudging the sagas. Remember, remember we used to do that? Remember we used to have a show where we read multiple right. sagas? We read sagas and then talked about them and judged them. Oh, I vaguely yes. remember this. Oh, good times. I remember yeah. those. <laughs> those are the halcyon days. <laughs> oh, well, we'll get back there someday. Uh-huh. Anyway, Thorkel Bully is actually very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it, Thorkel's reputation isn't just a matter of bragging. Uh, he's a widely traveled Viking and a monster slayer. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. He's got an impressive resume. Almost Beowulfian. He's killed a berserk in Sweden, a strange type of beast in Finland, and a flying dragon in Estonia. He's very impressive. Okay, hang on. You can't just blow past all those. A dragon? A strange beast? Mm -hmm. What is all this? Well, that's the reputation. I mean, he's an impressive guy. Mm -hmm. On that resume alone, I would consider taking him as Thingman over Gunnar. (laughs) Right? Come on now. Feel free. (laughs) <laughs> you heard so, it here folks yeah and, and Thorkel's proud of these things he likes mm-hmm. to advertise his deeds so he has murals carved of his battles and displayed in his home like I said braggart mm-hmm. uh, okay so we've seen dragon fights before uh, in Bjorn the Hitterdal champion saga and in Ragnar saga actually mm-hmm. uh, but this other thing is a really rare accomplishment the strange beast you mentioned is actually a Fingalkin in the Old Norse. Right, and uh, a cook translates it as half man, half beast, which is kind of vague. Yeah, which is okay. Uh, it gets the job done without belaboring the point. Nah, but John, this is saga thing, and we love belaboring points, don't we? That's yeah, our bread and butter. Okay, so what exactly is a Fingalkin? I have a, f- a feeling that you've got a sense of this, that you've looked into it. Yeah, I did. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I knew in it. Cook's footnote... He calls it a centaur-like creature. Centaur? Yeah. Uh, but I know I from like other that. sources that Fingalkin sometimes fight with a sword held in their claws. So this ain't a horse. Uh, or a or man horse, a, for that matter. Yeah, man horse. Yeah, I, I I don't know where you looked up Fingalkin. What are your uh-huh. sources? Where are you getting this information? I've never heard of this thing. Uh, well, I looked the term up in the usual dictionaries, but I also did a little bit of Google Foo. And the, uh, oh. the Fingalkin actually was the monster of the month on the Reykjavik Grapevine website last month. Uh-huh. Uh, we should link to that, actually. It gives a lot of information about them. All right. I can do that. All right. Now, now tell me, what kind of half-beast, half-man are we talking about? Mm-hmm. Well, it's not clear what the animal half is exactly uh, or how much uh, of the man and animal parts are involved. Uh, one tradition says the Fingalkin were the offspring of a tomcat and a vixen, a female are you, fox. Are you serious? Yes, absolutely. That's, it's not uh, exactly threatening. <laughs> well, you know? you know, although the fact that those two things could even have a child is kind of terrifying. Uh, <laughs> but other stories make them sound more like a basilisk with a serpent's body. Is that kind of like uh, that that image from uh, Olaf Tryggvason's saga? I suppose. Uh, but other stories make them sound more like a basilisk with a serpent's body. And there's also a tradition that says that the Fingalkin hatched from rooster eggs. <laughs> rooster eggs, you say? Uh-huh. Roosters laying eggs. Yeah. 
Yeah, roosters don't lay eggs usually. Well, that's why they're so scary. <laughs> uh, okay. Anyway, uh, some people do translate it as centaur, and others prefer the word to be sphinx. Uh, it's hard to say exactly what the thing is, though. Okay, so uh, either way, the the upshot is that it's a tough monster to kill, and, and Thorkel's killed ones. It makes him a right. cool guy. And he likes to brag about it. Right, so, yeah. uh, okay. Uh, Asgrim and the Njalsons visit Thorkel's booth, but before they go in, Asgrim says, It would mean a lot if we could have Thorkel's help. But we must watch our step, for he is headstrong and arrogant. I must ask you, Scarpathen, not to take part in the conversation. And in response, Scarpathen just grins at him. Uh, that's like a teacher. All right. <laughs> and sure enough, when Thorkel refuses their initial request for help, Scarpathen digs in hard. <laughs> yes, he does. First, he insults Thorkel over a fight Thorkel and his father Thorgir once had. But then he goes for broke. He says, you uh, you don't often take part in lawsuits. You're probably handier at dairy work on your little farm in Oxera. You really ought to pick from your teeth the pieces of the mare's ass you ate before <laughs> riding to the thing. Your shepherd was shocked that you do such a filthy thing. <laughs> I mean, honestly, notable witticism. Yeah. All wrapped up right there, isn't it? <laughs> what can you even say in a moment like that? I don't know, but presumably you say it while covering your teeth with your hand. Uh, <laughs> Thorkel is predictably enraged, leaps to his feet, and brandishes his sword. Well, I got this sword in Sweden, where I killed a mighty champion for it. And I've killed many others with it, too. I'll run you through with it, too, and that's what you'll get for your foul speech. <laughs> He's almost Yosemite Sam-esque. <laughs> I think that's appropriate. Yeah, he's like the the kind of giant the, Yosemite Sam. Oh, I tell you! <laughs> and so Scarpe then stands there with his axe, and then he just grins and says, "I had this axe in my hand when I leapt across the Markafjord River and killed Thrain Sigfusson. Eight men were standing around, and they didn't manage to catch me." And then he rushes at Thorkel. "You've got two choices, Thorkel bully." Oh, he's turned into Batman now. <laughs> Sheath your sword. <laughs> Sheath your sword and sit down, or I'll smash this axe into your head and split you down to the shoulders. Ugh. And Thorkel immediately prints Humperdinks. He, he drops <laughs> his sword and falls into his chair. What a great image. Well done. <laughs> and also, everyone needs to drink now. <laughs> I, you know what's brilliant about that? We both read that in the same way. I see exactly that. He just kind of folds yeah. his little skirt around him and sits down. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think that all of this was set up by Asgrim. Yeah, I think so. Uh, Asgrim got a kind of non-committal response from Goodman the Powerful. And so the very next thing he does is march the group over to Goodman's worst enemy's booth and order Scarpathen to behave himself and keep his mouth shut. Mm. Anyone who knows Scarpathen knows this is basically insisting that he insult the host. And there's another hint that Asgrim isn't too unhappy about Thorkel's humiliation. As the group's on their way back to their own booth, worn out from the begging, as Scarpathen puts it, <laughs> Asgrim says to him, You've been difficult all day, but I think your treatment of Thorkel was just what he deserved. Uh -huh. And it works, by the way. Uh, when Gudman the Powerful hears about what happened to Thorkel Bully, he can barely contain his delight. Yes. He tells his brother, Einar Thvera, to go support the Njalsons at once. <laughs> and if they need more help, I'll provide it myself. 
And isn't that the brilliance of the sagas? Yeah. They don't say, they don't explain why they're doing this no. or that. They just no. say, this is what happened and this this is what happened right. after. Right. And you, can, you, you have can, to piece together Exactly. Why. But you, you can picture this guy just jumping around in his booth, punching the air, going, woohoo! <laughs> right? <laughs> but, but what a great study of, of human behavior and, yep. and of human nature yep. without kind of being really overt about the whole yep. thing. And it's all, yeah, it's all sort of under the table. You have to sort of piece all this together. It's yeah, which is, yeah, it's why it's fun. It's fun to read this stuff. Uh, so that's it, right? That's it. Uh, for now, uh, the Njalsons get support from Goodman the Powerful and Gizzard the White. They get a promise of neutrality from Snorri Gothi and no help at all from the rest. But with the support they already had, they're not in a terrible position. The two sides aren't quite equal heading into the lawsuit, but it's close. All right, uh, now that everything's set up, let's sue somebody. Part 34, A Knife's Edge. So the next day, Asgrim meets with his chief supporters. His son Thorhall, Einar of Thvera, Gizur the White, Morth Valgudson, and Hjalti Skegison. Hmm. It's quite a, quite a brain trust. <laughs> the the meeting is to discuss the Njalsson's defense in the case over Hoskell's killing. See, you snuck it in there like I wouldn't notice, but uh, you said Morth Valgertsen. That's right. Uh, essentially, that's what the meeting's about. Uh, Osgrim tells the others about the subterfuge Morth's pulled by starting the case improperly, and everyone realizes the implication at once. Now, this is important, so I want to make sure that no one's confused. Actually, I want to make sure we're not confused. <laughs> Remember that Morth took part in the killing of Halskult. Yes. And then he pretended that he hadn't been there and actually started the case against the Njalsons for the killing. Yes. And then he turned the case over to the Sigfusons, who then turned it over to Flossi. Yes. And now he's back with the Njalson supporters and helping to build the defense for the Njalsons. Yes. Against the case that he started. And so I don't I don't even know if people are following this. <laughs> and the defense is that the suit's invalid because it was started by one of Hoskold's killers. That's all correct, yes. So Morth is either an evil genius or he's the sneakiest weasel in all of Iceland. <laughs> or both. Uh, yeah, exactly. I'm not sure that's an either or situation. No. Uh William Penchak calls Morth a master of the law, but only for personal advantage and evil schemes. Well, hold on now. Njal is also a master of the law and only for personal advantage and Not, not only. And not schemes. only. How many times have we seen uh, okay, Njal offer advice to others? Uh, but certainly, no, your point is right. Uh, he's a master of the law who occasionally uses it for personal advantage. Mm-hmm. But that's all Morth does with it. Uh, in essence, Morth's like the dark side version of Njal. No, that's fair. Right. Uh, Njal manipulates the law sometimes, but ultimately he believes in the power of law to achieve an objective good. For Morth, the law is a game played with loaded dice. Interesting. Well, I think there are arguments that could be made against that reading of Njal, um, mm-hmm. but that's for another time or place. It's a pretty thin moral distinction either way. Mm-hmm. Both men are ultimately using the law to win cases, and their superior knowledge of the law gives them an advantage over others. Well, it is thin. That's the point, right? I mean, it's so easy for the entire edifice of law and justice to crumble. In the second half of this saga, we can really track the decline of the ideals of the law. So th- so then the difference is that Njal respects the law even while he abuses it, whereas Morth uses it without concern for the ideals that give it purpose. Yeah, that's about right. I think uh, so. And Yeah. 
<laughs> and yeah, this is convoluted. I mean, deliberately so, right? That's the point of the plan is that nobody can track him through all this. Mm-hmm. But it is an audacious plan. And uh, Hjalti Skegjusen is especially excited about it. He has to be restrained from running to announce the situation at once to everyone at the all thing. So this is the same Hjalti Skegjusen who insulted the gods Odin and Freya. We, we mentioned that before, right? Yeah. So he's yeah. got a habit of leaping before he looks, doesn't he? Yeah, he's energetic, uh, but he's not necessarily the sharpest hook in the tackle box. Fortunately, there's a wiser head in the group. Uh, Thorhall Asgrimson, the guy who's been studying law with Njal for years, now speaks up and warns the other men to keep the defense quiet so that Flosi's band can't move to fix their mistake before the trial. Now, this is the first time we see Thorhall actually in action, and, and it's kind of important. He's mm-hmm. been learning from Njal for a long time now. And now he knows all the loopholes and can play the courtroom game better than other men. Well, better than Hjalti, anyway. Yeah. Uh, everyone agrees to keep quiet until the trial, and they all go their ways. And I assume someone is keeping an eye on Hjalti to make sure he doesn't go recite a poem about their plan. <laughs> and well, meanwhile, Flossi and the Sequesen set their case and name the defendants. And up to the day of court, there's really no contact at all between the groups. Right. Now, at the trial, both sides line up their most impressive supporters, which is essentially what we've been working out for the last half hour or so. Half hours? A little bit longer than that. <laughs> now, we could have actually saved time by skipping to this part if we wanted to. Well, and Miss Scarpehaven sneering at some of the greatest men of Iceland? Never. No, and I'm glad we didn't because that's really fun stuff. How, <laughs> you know, half our listeners wouldn't even know about Thorkel Bully if we jumped ahead. There you go. Yeah. So, Unless they listen to Rekdala Saga. That's right. Well, you know, he's just pops in. So uh, so both sides are lined up now. And uh, once mm-hmm. Flosi names the panel of jurors, he's committed to the suit. And Thorhall's able to spring Morth's trap. Right. He immediately explains that Morth was responsible for some of the wounds on Hoskold's body. And that because of that, any suit begun by him is obviously invalid. And now before anyone can react, Njal leaps up and says, I ask Call of Sitha and Flosi and all the Sigfasons as well as our men not to leave but to hear my words. This case is at an impasse, which was to be expected since it had evil roots. I want you to know that I loved Hoskold more than my own sons. And when I heard that he had been slain, I felt that the sweetest light of my eyes had been put out. And I would rather have lost all my sons to have him live. Mm. Wow. I mean, that's got to make Scarpathen, Grimm, and Helgi feel pretty good about themselves. <laughs> what a father. Yeah. <laughs> Njal's laying it on a bit thick. Yeah, that's actually a famous line. That uh, sweetest light of my eyes. A scholar, mm-hmm. Andrew Hamer, uh, uses this as a jumping off point for discussing the use of metaphor in Njal's saga. Well, it's a pretty well-traveled image. Uh, versions of that metaphor appear in several medieval texts. Uh, I think it ultimately derives from the Vulgate, right? Well, you should probably explain that the Vulgate is a Latin version of the Bible. We have listeners who aren't medievalists out there. Why would I explain that? You just did it for me. So Hammer's point is <laughs> <laughs> that uh, that this is part of a set of vision-based stories and metaphors in the saga, and, and mm-hmm. that the author is using it deliberately. Hmm. Well... Deliberate or not, it gets everyone's attention. Uh, and aside from hurting his son's feelings, Nial is trying to set up a negotiation here. Right? He proposes that both sides should appoint representatives to a council of men that can hammer out a settlement. Mm-hmm. Everyone except Flosi is on board, but Flosi holds out. 
until his father-in-law, Hall of Sitha, asks him to yield. Ah, see, there's Hall again. Uh, He keeps turning up in this saga at important moments. Uh, We'll talk about him in a couple episodes, um, but for now, he's a voice of reason. And so the two sides agree to a council. Flossie's nominees are led by Hall, but Njol's aren't really led by one person. They they actually include Osgrim and Hjalti, but also Giza the White, Guthman the Powerful, Einar of Farah, and Snorri Gothi. And that's Njol's genius. Why? Why do you say that? Because they're a committee. They're a combination of uh, partisans who support Njol, like Osgrim and Hjalti, uh, men who are on his side for reasons of obligation, like Gizur, and then fence-sitters like Guthman and Snorri, who've been lukewarm in their support. Uh, but but partisans are what's needed here. We need them. Well, sure, but this council is going to have to choose a mouthpiece or a speaker. And the clear compromise choices are all men y'all nominated. Ah, see, okay. So so when the council has to make proposals or deliberate on the case, y'all's men are going to do most of the talking. And we saw back mm-hmm. in Bundamana Saga, for example, that the person who speaks the judgment has a lot of power over the outcome. Bandamanasaga. Oh, yes. So much fun to say. Bandamanasaga. Uh, yeah, exactly. And that's what happens. The council begins their deliberations by asking Snorri Gothi to lead things, because of course he's the greatest man there. Oh. And when he come, when he comes up with a plan to value Hoskold at triple compensation, the first two men to speak in support of it are Gudmund and Gizur. So Njal's contingent is controlling the conversation, which is really right. important. And we should say that triple compensation is a very steep price. Yes. The point, as Snorri says, is to set a fine so huge that no man in Iceland will ever have been more costly than Hoskold. Right. This is an honor move. Yeah. And for everyone involved, it is. Yeah. It will make Flossi look good to be getting, uh, to be getting. It will make Flossi look good to get such a huge settlement. It'll make Njal look magnanimous to pay out such a huge penalty. And Snorri will look like a genius for resolving a case without bloodshed. Right. Uh, Preben Mühlengrock Sorensen cites this case as an example of the difficulty of legal proceedings. The crucial problem, he says, is to get peace restored in such a way that nobody loses standing or social status. And there's still one problem, which is that that triple compensation really is a huge figure. It's 600 ounces of silver, which is more than any one man has on hand. And Snorri adds the stipulation that it has to be paid right away, right there at the all thing. Mm-hmm. So he's not really going easy on Njal, even though he's fighting to keep the Njalsons from being outlawed. Well, or at least he doesn't want to be seen as going easy on Njal. Oh, that's that's fair, yes. Geezer objects that Snorri's idea can't work as a settlement because mm-hmm. there's no way that Njal can pay that much on the spot. <laughs> Goodwin then chimes in that the solution must be that they, the Council of Twelve, will chip in to pay half of the fine. Right, now note that these are all Njal supporters speaking. Yes. Now this means that each of the counselors will win in their honor for their statesmanlike generosity. Mm-hmm. Snorri's really, really good at this kind of thing. And as always, he comes out looking great. Is it suspicious that all three of the men coming up with this solution are from Njal's side? Well, it's certainly interesting that that's the case. Right, but no collusion is suggested. I think what we're seeing is that Snorri comes up with a solution that benefits Njal's family while increasing everyone's honor, and the others are quick to support the best deal they're likely to get. Hall of Sitha agrees on behalf of the Flosi contingent, and the settlement is made and announced. Now, when the settlement is announced, Njal thanks Hall and the others for the settlement, but Scarpathen just stands back 
with that same faded, cynical grin on his face. Mm. And when the time comes for everyone to collect the payment together, Njal begs his sons, especially Scarpathen, not <laughs> to interfere with the process. There's People hope keep here. begging Scarpathen not to say things. It yeah. never works. Right? Scarpathen just strokes his forehead and grins again. Now, we know Scarpathen thinks he's doomed at this point, but it's not clear to me what he's up to. Well, if he is fated, he's acting like he knows it. But mm-hmm. we already said that he doesn't have the gift of foresight. He's yeah. just touched by fate in some different way. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, he keeps quiet. And the forehead stroking? Eh, maybe he's got a headache or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Njol wants to make... I think, it, it honestly, I think the uh, stroking of the forehead indicates a, a kind of a knowing discomfort, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Njol wants to make this a smooth settlement. So he adds in his own contribution, a silk robe and a pair of boots. And these are meant to be a gift to Flosi directly. Mm-hmm. And so as the two sides reconvene to exchange the payment, everything seems poised for a peaceful resolution. Not amicable, maybe, but peaceful. Yeah, so what could possibly go wrong? Part 35. A broken peace. So I think the best thing to do here is to explain what happens briefly and then talk about it. Because this is a very short moment in the saga, but it's a nexus for a lot of different stuff. Okay. Well, uh, the short version is that the settlement collapses when Flossie takes offense at the robe that Njol added to the pile of money. Mm. So apparently he sees it as effeminate. So he then insults Njol by reviving the old beardless insult, Mm -hmm. suggesting that Njol's ambiguous sexual identity explains such a robe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scarpathen then retaliates by throwing a pair of black pants at Flossie and calling him a troll's wife. So rather than, I mean, things really kind of escalate quickly, <laughs> gets, don't they? It gets, it gets ugly in a hurry. Rather than violate the peace of the all thing, the two sides then both retreat to their booths with the settlement all in tatters. Everything's mm-hmm. ruined. They leave all the money on the ground and two of the council take that money to save it for later. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. Good night, everyone. We're going to see you next no, week. No, 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 no. That's, that's not quite it. Um, we still have to explain what's going on. All right. Well, explain. I thought I did a decent job. <laughs> All right. Uh, so as I see it, there are three problems we need to resolve in what you just described. Oh, so I so I get it. I just summarize. Now you want that's to discuss it. Oh, just like yes. uh, you know, it's I want like to have a conversation. A freshman writing class. There Stop you go. Stop just summarizing, people. That's right. Well, I think the obvious problem, at least the first one we should talk about, is why Flosi thinks that the robe is an offense. Mm-hmm. And not just an offense, but one serious enough to derail the settlement over. Yeah. Uh-huh. And the second problem is related to the first. Is it offensive? Right? Is Nyal deliberately trying to provoke Flosi and the Sigfusens? And there's also the matter of what happens to the settlement money. It's a lot of money. Oh, that's true. I hadn't been thinking about that. So that means there are four issues to resolve. Because I also want to talk about the troll wife insult. Ah, everyone loves a good troll insult. They do indeed. Uh, but let's start with the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and uh, Flossie's decision <laughs> to interpret it as an insult. <laughs> okay. Uh, but even from just the way you said that, I can tell that you're not on Flossie's side in this. Mm-hmm. Is Flossie choosing to be offended? In other words, is he derailing the peace process deliberately? A lot of people think he is. And there's some evidence for that. Uh, the Norse word here is silkeslaver which translates as silk garment, right? a cloak most likely, but can also be rendered as gown or shirt. Uh, it's pretty clearly a fancy piece of clothing, in other words, but there's no particular reason to assume it's effeminate. 
which is the nature of the offense in Flusi's opinion. True. Uh, the same word is used to describe a cloak given as a gift to Ael Scala Grimson, and, and Ael takes it as a flattering gift. Right. Uh, there's actually even a similar exchange in this saga. Right? Way back in the early chapters, we saw Halgrith's uncle Hrut add a beautiful cloak to the settlement payment for her first husband's death. Ah. In that case, too, it's understood by everyone involved that this is simply a lovely gesture. It's an extra fillip of generosity that cements an amicable resolution to a matter of honor. Which suggests that this is a stink eye of the beholder thing, right? <laughs> if that's a phrase I can use. If Flosi deliberately misunderstands the gift in order to have an excuse to disrupt a settlement that he actually didn't want in the first place. Well, remember, he has to be talked into that settlement by Hall of Sida, his father-in-law. Mm-hmm. Right? This gets him out of the settlement without appearing to disregard his father-in-law's counsel. But that brings us to the second question. Mm-hmm. Why does Njol add this silk slather to the pile of silver? I mean, is this an honest and generous gift? Or mm. is Njol trying to serve a future that he already sees as inevitable and kind of hasten towards it? Mm-hmm. And, and there's a related question here. When Flosi asks who added the gift, why does Njol say nothing? Well, I mean, those are among the great unanswered questions of this saga. Uh, one of the things that's happening during the course of our saga is that a lot of time has been passing. Njol's gone from a relatively young man to a man with adult grandchildren over the course of the saga. Right. Uh, Amundi the Blind is uh, Njol's grandson. Mm-hmm. And at least two generations have grown up since we first saw Njol and Gunnar together. Right. Now, in that time, Njal's lost friends, he's lost sons, he's lost foster sons, he's manipulated the law and seen it fail to prevent violence time and time again. He's an old man who's now sure that the fate he's been dreading for so long is coming to pass. Yeah. And uh, he also hoped that Christianity might resolve some of the issues of right. the, the island, but clearly that's not coming true either. Absolutely. Um, and the fate that he's dreading is the death of his entire family. Yeah. So, and he's had multiple forebodings of that. It's coming as far as he thinks. We've seen before that Njal often knows the things he or others must do to bring about a possible future. So it's possible that he's deliberately sabotaging the settlement out of resignation. But that's far from certain. And in fact, I actually don't buy it. Uh, I think it's much more likely, and you can find scholars on either side of this, but I think it's much more likely that he's still trying to bring about the best possible future and that the gift is part of that. But Flosi reacts badly. Well, he reacts really badly. I mean, it does feel a little over the top the way he responds, like he's performing being offended rather than actually being offended. Yes, exactly. No, exactly. And when he when he does that, Nyal realizes that the game is up and there's no escaping fate now. Mm-hmm. So there's no reason to say anything since anything he says will only hasten the inevitable outcome. What do you think? I agree with that entirely. I, I see Flosi as he was put in a position by his his oaths that he is going to seek a violent revenge. And right. this is his way to pursue that. And Njol is quietly resigned at this point mm-hmm. to that mm-hmm. fate. Uh, but whether Njol is provoking his fate or trying to create a lasting peace, Flosi's response is unexpected. He responds by reviving the old beardless insult against Njol. This is the third time we've seen Njal's lack of facial hair weaponized against him and his family. 
Right. Now, I know we've talked about this on previous occasions, about this the implications of uh, beardlessness. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nyal's smooth face makes him abnormal in a culture that equates facial hair with male sexual maturity. Exactly. Now, I've read other ideas about the significance of Nyal's face, but they're not generally convincing. Well, such as, if you're going to say such a thing. Well, Robert Ferguson argues, and this is a quote, The reference is to the practice introduced by Christian missionaries and followed by the convert Nyal of going clean shaven. Wait wait a minute. Yeah, yeah. So in other words, what he's saying is that Nyal is is, uh, bare-cheeked because he shaves because Christians taught him to do that when he converted. Uh, Yeah, that that sounds nice. But uh, Uh that insult has been used against Nyal throughout the whole saga. And he only converted a few chapters ago. As I said, he's not. I'm not convinced. Uh, I mean, this is <laughs> well, for you know, good reason. Well, and you know, we do see things in the sagas where somebody gets a nickname before the thing that causes them to have that nickname, like somebody called Woodleg before they have their leg chopped off. That's not this case. Right? Nyal's been beardless his whole life. It's a congenital condition. When we're first introduced to him, we're told there's one thing about him: no beard grew upon him. Uh, it's been a feature about descriptions about him since long before the conversion. Uh, but the important point in the text right now, this is the most public declaration yet that that smooth face didn't indicates a lack of manhood. And Flossie's not pulling any punches with it. He says, there are many who can't tell by looking at him whether he's a man or a woman. Now, that's been building over the course of the saga. Mm-hmm. I mean, each time the insult comes up, it's heard by more people and with higher stakes in the game of honor. Mm. And and the implicit characterization of Njol as androgynous, uh, especially with his wife being also androgynous, mm. are now being stated flat out. Yeah. And this time it's at the all thing. Yeah. And with all the most important chieftains of Iceland present, it's impossible to get more public than this. It's also the first time anyone has pushed it this far. This is the first time Njol's face has been insulted to his face. Uh, if we're thinking in terms of the game of honor, as you said, this has suddenly gotten very serious. Oh, yeah. And it, it demands an equally strong response. Which brings us to Scarpathen's retaliation and uh, the thing you wanted to talk about, the troll wife insult. Yeah, this is a uh, – we probably need to read this out. Uh, do you want to be Flossie or Scarpathen? Well, I, I've been doing Scarpathen all episodes, so I'll do yeah. him with a, probably a different voice. Who knows? Of course you will. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, pick up after Flossie said that y'all might be a man or a woman. All right, so uh, uh, Scarpathen says, That's a wicked thing to do, making slurs about him in his old age, and no man worthy of the name has ever done this before. You can tell that he's a man because he's had sons with his wife, and few of our kinsmen have ever been buried uncompensated without our taking vengeance for them. And then Scarpathen throws those black pair of pants at mm. uh, Flossie, and he says, You need this more than a robe. And why do I need them more? Because if you are the sweetheart of the troll of Svinafell, as is widely reported, he <laughs> uses you as a woman every ninth night. Okay. <laughs> uh, there's a lot to deal with there, and mm-hmm. we can't hope to cover all of it. Well, for starters, there's the response to the specific insinuation that Njal cannot be a father if he's not a man. Yeah, uh, I think we talked about the importance of that issue. Not just for Nyal, but for his entire family. 
This is a culture that cares about bloodlines and genealogies. The implication that the Nialsons are actually the sons of their mother's unknown lover threatens to disrupt their entire family story. Yeah, there's also the thread in Scarpathen's reference to their relatives not going uncompensated for wrongs done to them. It's more assertion about the family bonds that Flosi's insult puts under attack, but it's also a boast about the men Scarpathen's already killed over matters of honor, including Thrain Sigvason, Halskold Thrainson, and the killers of Gunnar Hamunderson. Right, and that line, he's had sons with his wife, is a subtle threat as well. Hmm. Right. Remember, we heard a similar line from Helgi Vestensen in Gisli Saga right after he and his brother had killed Thorkel Sursen. Right. One, may, one way you can tell a man has sons, in other words, is the swiftness of the vengeance visited upon you when you wrong their father. Ah, very nice. Yeah, and it's a hell of an insult. And the part about the troll, at least, is fairly mm-hmm. popular. I mean, accusations of sexual relations with the troll show up a few times in the sagas. Uh, there are similar insults in uh, Ref the Sly saga, which I can't wait to get to. Uh, mm-hmm. We see it in Thorstein's Sidhu Halsen saga and uh, in Aelhood saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cook and Sorensen both cover this motif pretty well. Right. And, of course, by turning the sexual insult back on uh, Flosi, Scarpaven also covers up this idea that no one's ever dared to insult Njal before for his beardlessness, which at best is disingenuous because, of course, Scarpaven has personally taken revenge for previous versions of this insult. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, we're dealing with a literary tradition that celebrates heteronormative masculinity. Mm-hmm. Right. So the reference to taking a woman's part in a sex act is a further insult. And the monstrous nature of the sex partner is another facet. Yes. And actually, the structure of the insult is a classic form, so much so that it's covered in Norwegian law of the time. It's an outlawable offense if a man declares, and this is a quote from the, uh, the law codes, it's an outlawable offense if a man declares that another man is a woman every ninth night or says he has born a child or calls him a monster. Right. Scarpaven's insult covers two of those three. So it's pretty clearly a deliberate reference to that tradition by the author. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, here's a question. Mm-hmm. What do black pants have to do with being a troll's woman, exactly? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, it's a little obscure. Uh, the most likely answer is that Scarpaven's implying that Flosie doesn't wear men's pants during his uh, Svinafel assignations. <laughs> but it's also possible that the pants are meant to be women's trousers or leggings. Well, either way, where's Scarpathen getting them from? I mean, he's just come to the all thing and he's got a pair of spare pants in his back pocket. It's a good idea to carry spare pants. You you never know when you're going to get someone else's blood on your clothes. (laughs) That's good advice, folks. Uh, oh, you, 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 uh, you said you wanted to talk about the money that gets left behind from the failed settlement. Uh, Well, I mean, I'm still interested in these pants and what they imply. (laughs) Um, but I guess I guess we need to move forward. This episode's got to end eventually. Um, <laughs> I, okay, there's not a ton to say about it. After Flosi shoved the money away and stormed off, the council and their supporters are left standing around a heap of silver. And that silver belongs to all of them. Well, all of them and the Nelsons. Yes, it does. But uh, they've gone off too. So mm-hmm. none of the actual litigants in the case are left. And none of the counselors actually want to take their money back. Well, that's not entirely true. Uh, they have a brief conversation about it. Uh, but then Goodman the Powerful says, I don't choose to bring shame on myself by taking back what has been given. Uh, now, at that point, it'd be hard for anyone else to reach a handout for their portion of the cash. 
True, but uh, they also can't leave the money sitting there. Uh, <laughs> so Snorri Gothi tells Geezer and Hjalti to each take half of it and hold it until next year's all thing. He says, I've got a sense it won't be long until it's needed. See, and we said he couldn't foretell the future. Well, you know, I don't think you need to be a fortune teller to know there's going to be violence. And Snorri Gothi's a good reader <laughs> of people right. and situations. Right. He, he can see what's going on. Oh, yeah. uh, well, uh, as Sorensen writes... This exchange between Flossie and Scarpe then marks the final breakup of peace. This is the turning point at which the judicial negotiations are swept overboard and armed conflict supervenes. Supervenes. Mm. So Snorri's prediction is a recognition of exactly that. Things can no longer be settled without violence, so the silver will be needed later, if it's not needed now, to settle, obviously, the deaths of other men. Right. Now, on the face of it, this is a really ambiguous thing. Um, are we supposed to be focused on the grim inevitability of violence and death? Or is this is this sort of pocketing away of the money? Is this an assertion that the law will still be there to reconcile the survivors once the bloodlust has run its course? Or is all of this an emphasis on the, the failure of law in general? Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, yeah, I don't see a lot of hopefulness in this particular moment either way. Yeah, no, no I suppose I don't either. Uh, although Scarpaven at least... Seems pretty happy that the lawsuit stuff is over. Oh, yeah. Well, he likes... Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's always been one to prefer violence to legal solutions. Uh, So as the family heads back to their booth, uh, Scarpaven says to Njal, Well, now they can't ever prosecute us according to the law. He's really pleased by what's happened. Or maybe he at least accepts it. Mm -hmm. Hmm. But uh, but Njal responds, Then what comes next will be worse for everyone. And I think that pretty much encapsulates the competing father and son worldviews right there. Yes. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Scarpathian's rushing headlong toward this fate, mm-hmm. and y'all's been doing everything he can to avoid it. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and it's, I think it's also a nice echo of Nal's earlier pronouncement that lawlessness will be the ruin of Iceland. Yeah, and this is a great example of it. Uh, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we won't get to the ruin of Iceland just yet, because we're <laughs> at the end of this very long episode. Both parties ride away from the all thing, but... Before they go, Flossie and his supporters all swear an oath to support one another in their pursuit of revenge against the Njalsons. Right, and and everyone understands that Flossie is now planning to lead an assault against Njal's family. Yes. And that assault will lead to one of the most famous massacres in all the sagas. Ah, massacre's a strong word, but uh, that's all for next time. For now, we're going to have to leave it there. With Njal and his family awaiting their fate, with Flossie and his men committed to the destruction of Njal's family... And with the entire island holding its collective breath. Yeah, uh, sorry about that. I guess we're doing a cliffhanger. Uh, not really. I think everyone knows exactly <laughs> what's going to happen. But, uh, you know, we'll get there eventually. In the meantime, please let us know what you think about the story so far, what you'd like us to cover that we haven't gotten to, and what we've done to offend you if we have. You, you can reach us through Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod, or on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast. The blog site uh, that you can visit and leave comments on as well is sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can attach a short note to a St. Bernard's collar, add a small cartoonish barrel of whiskey, and send the dog to rescue us. If you don't hear back, send another dog with more whiskey. Hmm. I wasn't aware that we were in the need of rescuing, but uh, I will accept the barrels of whiskey. <laughs> Uh, So that's it for now. Thanks for listening, everyone. We will be back soon with another episode of the Endless Njal Saga. Bye for now.
Well, I don't know about you, but I keep all of my nefarious plans in a little black book. Plan book. A black plan book. What, what the hell is that? Black plan book. I don't know. <laughs>